0: it's amber bradley your host for the unscripted side of lp it's talk lp podcast time what's up talk lp podcast fans it's amber bradley your host for the unscripted side of lp and we are super excited to have kristen zeman former police chief of aurora illinois police department
1: welcome to the hot seat Thank you so much. feels a little warm. It's not hot yet. Yeah,
0: look, I think uh, given what you've dealt with in your life, I don't even think I should call it the hot seat, right? I mean, it's kind of like the chill freezer, um, given all you have done in your um, career. So just in case people have been living under a rock and don't know who you are, I'm going to give them your quick bio, and then we're going to get into it. Okay. Uh, Former police chief already said that in a 30-year career in law enforcement, she is a trailblazer which everyone's like, no wonder she's having her on. She (laughs) became the first woman lieutenant in 2008, first woman commander in 2010, and eventually the first woman chief in her department's history in January of 2016. Kristen was also the chief on watch during a mass shooting in her hometown of Aurora, Illinois, and an author of Reimagining Blue. So we had you at Apex as a a keynote speaker, which you rocked it everyone went nuts um and you walked the audience through this mass shooting event that you managed and then several lessons from there i we're not going to talk about that today half <laughs> the audience is going oh because they didn't That was such HX. a tease <laughs> okay, this mass
1: shooting but never mind we're not going to talk about we're not going to
0: talk about that because if you want to hear about all of that uh you have to come to RLPSA which is a restaurant show but super valuable for everyone listening in april um, but what's really cool about that presentation, um, Chris, and I can tell you is that you, although being law enforcement and some retailers might be like, well, what does she know? She's not walking in my shoes. And you're like, okay, well, you really gave the retailers in the audience, um, a perfect, like, here's what you do. Here's what I've learned. and And it's stuff I haven't heard. And I've been doing trade shows for a long time. So Come to RLPSA, you can hear this. What we're gonna talk about today is reimagining Blue because it is a page turner, right? Um, So you gotta pick up a copy. I will have a link to do that in the show notes. But you get into this, like this book is no joke. You know, sometimes people like write these books and it's like, oh, like every, you know, everyone's fine, but you really address some major things.
1: Yeah, well, I have to, I I have to uh, confess that it didn't start out that way. It started out super vanilla, um, where I was, you know, just it was like supposed to be this, you know, leadership book memoir and leadership, not with the intent that I know anything about leadership, but my leadership journey, the things I've learned, and how I failed at leadership over and over again. And I sat down and I wrote this book, and it was super sanitized. And then uh, I retired. Uh, I left uh, my job as a police chief and, you know, 27-year sworn police officer. And I sat down and I said, man, you know, like, this isn't real. It just felt disingenuous uh, because it didn't rock the boat. And I realized that to start a conversation, you have to make people feel uncomfortable. And I have to admit is when we are in positions, you know, we are bound to our boss, you know, the mayor in the city. And, you know, and so like, I've always had to weigh my words and measure my thoughts very carefully. And so I sat down and I threw caution to the wind and I said, I'm going to write about how I really feel about these things. And I decided that when I finished it, which by the way, was therapy that it was going to piss some people off. It was going to yeah. piss off the cops too, because I call balls and strikes. I don't have this mindset of blind loyalty. And I think that's actually part of what is lacking in our profession at some times. And so I sat down and I just, I gave the raw truth. And then in order to do that, I had to get kind of vulnerable about my own personal life and my upbringing because without telling that story it doesn't make sense you know to understand where i've been to where i've i've ended up in my life so so that's why it started out sanitized and then i just threw caution to the wind
0: that's really cool to know especially as you read it because you really are vulnerable to say look i used to think this way and yeah. then i was educating myself which you know in this day and time and you talk about some of the events of 2020 and we'll get into some of that too but it's like In this day and time, I think everyone is on some kind of self-discovery journey when it comes to, you know, diversity, privilege, like all of these things that honestly haven't been kosher to talk about, you know, or people are just ignoring it. People don't even believe that it exists or whatever. So you hit some major themes that I want to, I want to get into, um, in the book and kind of, and I'm not spoiling anything because it's, there's way more than where this came from, what we're going to talk about today. So I'm just teasing everyone really, because they're going to have to, to pick up a copy. Um, Okay. You talk about power, right? And for me, you had so many nuggets of wisdom in the definition of power and how you see power. And so, and, and especially in your journey, I mean, talk about somebody that has power right especially all the way up to chief, which is so cool um anyway talk about your definition how it's evolved and then i i love your example about the commander who didn't want anyone warming up their car and then, and then you discover that he's having a remote car starter installed in his car okay go that's
1: amazing. Yeah, you can't make this stuff up. Okay. So I wanted to really delve into why we are in the predicament that we are in right now, the divisiveness in our country. And as far I'm in, in politics, race, you name it. I mean, you know, generational, you know, it's just there's so much division. And I started to delve into um the idea of what power is. And we have this notion that power is negative as if you have power, you know, then that must be, you know, it's the whole... uh power corrupts. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. That when people, and we hear it all the time, when people, good people that start to get into positions, you know, whether it be, you know, political positions, you know, candidates that they didn't start out corrupt, but it's the power that makes them corrupt. And so, you know, I still, I wrote a book about it, you know, and talked about power, but I still, you know, really vacillate with, with a, a true definition. So I won't even try to nail down a definition, but let's talk about the concept of power is that, power can be good. Power is great when you use your power for good, right? But it's when people start to use their power um, for evil. And and I use the word evil deliberately, but um, on a more watered down level, if you use power to elevate yourself, um, when it comes from, you know, a selfish or narcissistic position, like the commander that you mentioned, you know, he exercised his power over others. And so I started to really look at power, and that it can be used good when we used when we use the the concept of power with, is that we Empower other people, and but power over is a negative thing if you use it, you know, to uh, to advance your own agenda that is not for the good of the whole. And that's what, really a great example of you know a politician that turns corrupt is that they begin to think about how they're going to get reelected, and so then they fall prey to those who donate to their you know um, you know to their campaign, and then they make decisions like. Legislative and otherwise uh, that keep them in power, and they have then lost the idealism um, of what it means to be in that position. So that's just one example. But where I'm really, you know, wanted to to take it was police officers, and I wanted to to look at a disparity of power. And I had this epiphany in my life because I've had bad bosses and you mentioned one of them. I call them in our lives. We have mentors and we have tormentors. And I I spent some time talking about my tormentors and I have had a a regime of people who tried to keep me down because they wanted to elevate their people. You know, it's like, you know, the tribal, you know, as we move up in in a company, positions get more and more scarce. And so I've had this, um, this, this notion that the man was always trying to keep me down, or at least this small regime. And it occurred to me that, Even though I felt powerless, I was slinging around words, you know, like I'm being tormented, you know, and I'm like, what is actual torment, you know, and what is actual oppression, you know, and I realized like, I haven't even, I haven't even suffered any of that. I've been a cop my whole life. I mean, I started in policing when I was 21 years old, they gave me a badge and a gun and they said, go forth and and enforce the law. I've always been in a position of power, even though I didn't realize it. And so, so to me, you know, power is about power over w- someone else and power with you when you use your power for good, uh, for the collective good. And so that's, you know, really what um, I started to think about in policing is that the disparity of power in when you, as a police officer who walks on the scene or into an environment. They automatically have that command presence and that power and authority, and we don't think of that. At least I didn't think of that. And so when now when you break down some of these instances or these incidents that have happened, um, that have sent ripples across our nation, they begin with that imbalance of power. But then sometimes it's how the police officer you know acts and and it, it, or it starts um, you know an interaction with someone that. Predicts the outcome, and so I'll leave it there. Just because if there's you know other things you want me to clear up or touch on, yeah.
0: So it's interesting because I'm to relate it back to the LP community, right? I mean, and this is a drum that I constantly beat, but uh, because I I am I am fortunate to make my living as an observer of the LP community, right? Journalistic, you know, that kind of thing. So for me, I've never been in their shoes, but I like to pose questions for them to think about. And they have power Mm -hmm. over the employees and others, even executives in the company, primarily because they are investigating potential internal theft. It Mm -hmm. could be, you know, C-suite type of fraud kind of thing. So I'm always talking about, you what you're saying is you know wielding that power with compassion and empathy because even though they're walking into an interview room to interrogate an employee about whether they've stolen something or how long they've been stealing and of course there's interrogation tactics that we're they're all trained to use and Mm -hmm. it's like okay well just because this is your 200th interview yeah and you have power over this person this person is in a life changing situation.
1: Absolutely. And
0: you talk about, you know, human connection and being able to, you know, respect people. And I think all of that comes in this whole power construct that you're talking about.
1: Yeah. Basically what you've touched on here is a simple concept that, people are neither all good nor all bad, right? And there are people in positions that have to investigate when things go wrong, maybe, you know, in the LP community, in the law enforcement community, what have you, in a company, in an organization. And, and so that is just the natural, um, you know, the unfolding of human nature is that there are going to be people that do things that are bad right and so there has to be people that you know that investigate that and but my premise of the book is that that so the power over in in these instances is that you know we are in positions where we have to you know thwart that bad um activity from from occurring right or hold someone accountable but that we can do all of that while still treating people with human dignity and respect. And I've come across so many people in the course of my law enforcement career that have done bad things, committed crimes as it were, but they doesn't make them bad people, right? So it's like, you have to look at the action and not the person. And that's also how you main consistency in an organization is that you look at the action and, you know, and so you hold people accountable, but oftentimes in an organization, the culture is that, you know, you don't like that person. And so, you know, it becomes this, this inconsistency, which is a whole other conversation, but, but to your point, it's about, The idea that you can still hold people accountable. You can still enforce the law, enforce policy, enforce whatever it may be, and still treat people with human dignity and respect in the process.
0: Well, I think what's really cool about talking to you about this particular subject is because, you know, not to degrade what the loss prevention executive is going through, but at the same time, I think it's fair to say they're not running into bullets. Right. I mean, they're not wondering every day if they're going to come home to their loved ones. I think that's a more real concept for law enforcement than the LP community, given that there are active shooter events and very dangerous things. Don't send me hate tweets. You know what I'm talking about. You know what I mean? So, you know, I think it's, it's almost like you have been at the top of the game from a law enforcement perspective, had dealt with things unimaginable to people like me and others. And if you can do it, Mm -hmm. why you know like if you and and you've trained your um force to do it right it's all about that human um connection piece which you know i think in general is probably a good
1: humanity lesson for everybody it is and you know this kind of goes also back to power right is that i watched police officers I started as a police cadet in my department, 17 years old, and I was a little sponge. And I walked into that department and I watched officers talk down to people. I watched them borrow power from their position, their badge, you know, their patch, um, their rank, you know, on their collar. And I, I, I remember thinking, okay, that's how it's done because I yield power. Therefore I must have power over and talk down to people who don't have power. And I had a rude awakening uh, one day. So this is early in my career, I've had, I had three years as a cadet, and then I finally became a police officer at 21, couple years on the job. And I was emulating the officers around me. And, you know, and, and by that, I I mean, very rude and, you know, Hey, you come over here. I want to talk to you versus sir, you know, can I have a moment of your time? Just, just that sentence starts an interaction between me and someone else. And that right there, it's about respect. But I thought, that I I had to act a certain way. And it's innate in all of us. We go into an organization, into a community, into a new new environment, and we automatically want to fit in. You want to fit in, right. You want to fit in. And so I started watching the wrong people. And so that's why I had in my mind that I had to come up with this, this personality that was nothing like who I actually was. And so I did that for a couple of years, you know, and every time somebody opened their mouth, I was like, you want another ticket? Keep talking. You, got a pen here. you want, you want one more ticket? You know, because that's what I learned to do is that you talk back to me. Then now you have challenged my yeah, power. The ego, yeah, that ego you know? gets hooked. And oh. when that happens, it's yeah. all problems. Absolutely, and I and there are police officers, there are individuals that will absolutely enforce the law equally, one hundred percent. If it's a if it's a grandmother, a soccer mom, and they're going twelve over the speed limit, they will write them a ticket. But. It's been my experience that that's where discretion lies, you know, is that, you know, the nice grandmother, you're probably not going to get a ticket, but if you start mouthing off, I now have the power to, yeah. and I've been guilty of that. I'm like, you, you're giving me a hard time here. Oh, it looks like, oh, look, your, your plate's expired. So I'm going to write you for that too. <laughs> so that's precisely what I'm talking about is what I kind of learned to do by watching a, a select few people that I thought I needed to emulate. And then. You know, two years into the job, I'm working overtime on day shift and I make a traffic stop. And it was kind of funny that day because, uh, all it was all the day shift officers. They're the veteran officers. And I'm just making, I'm watching the stop sign and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. People just keep running the stop sign. I'm pulling them over, either writing them tickets or giving them warnings. And I make another stop and I'm getting messages on my computer from the other cops that are like, slow down. You're making us look bad. And I make this traffic stop. And it was, it, you know, it's relatively innocuous. If you, you know, it's, I walk up to the car and, um, sir, I pulled you over because you ran that stop sign. You rolled right through it. Can I see your driver's license? Hands me the driver's license. I go back to my car and I run it through the mobile data computer and it chirps right away. I get a message from my dispatch saying, uh, this is, uh, an armed, there, this person is, uh, tagged armed and dangerous and has two active warrants. Uh, one of which is for resisting. And so I was like, here we go. No soon do I look up and he's gone. He is bolted out of his car. And so the foot pursuit is on. So I call it in that I'm in pursuit and we are now running through the backyards and um, I have no idea where I am. So I can't, so I literally can't even call in my location because I'm, I'm so turned around and so lost and we're running. And I devised this great plan, a brilliant plan. And that is that I'm going to catch him because at that time, you know, I'm 23, 24, I've got some wheels on me. And so I'm starting to close the gap. I'm like, all right, so I'm going to run after this dude and I am going to pounce, tackle and handcuff. And And he's a big dude. He's a big dude. He's a big dude. dude. Yeah. And, and I tell you every time I tell the story, he gets bigger. Um, And so, yeah, he's a big dude. And so that's my plan. And so as I'm running, I close the gap as predicted and I pounce, I grab onto this guy and I hang on to him and he does not fall, like doesn't even like topple, doesn't waver nothing. And in that moment, I don't know what caused me to do this, but I didn't let go and he didn't stop running. So if you can picture a little baby cop like I'm riding this guy's back like a, like a backpack, right? And he just keeps running and I'm thinking what the hell am I going to do right now? And so I devise a plan in my head and that is okay, go to plan B. He's going to kill you. So I blurt that out. I just said, "I know I know you can kill me." And and I just kept rambling. I said, "I know you can kill me." but you won't get any street cred if you beat up a baby cop. And you know, and I just keep rambling. And I said, just stop. And I won't write you for fleeing and we'll take care of your warrants because it was inevitable. And I'm speaking in complete sentences right now, but I know that when I was writing his back, it didn't come out as articulate. And as I'm done blurting out all of this stuff, the dude just stops and I like slide down his back <laughs> and he literally just places his hands behind his back and I cuff him. And I go to grab my radio to let everybody know because I can hear the sirens in the distance just to let everybody know he's in custody and my radio is gone. And he he literally looks at me and he says, you dropped your radio back there. So picture this, I'm hanging onto the guy that his handcuffs and he's leading me to where I dropped my radio. He's like, I think it's over here somewhere. I pick up my radio and I literally, I'm like, subject in custody, like in my- <laughs> Badass voice, right? And I'm walking with this guy. And I I just I said, I have to ask you, why did you stop? I said, You could have beat the crap out of me, you know? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know, nobody's ever just talked to me before. And I was like, what? And we had this conversation about how every cop he's ever run into just barks orders at him. And 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 I had this epiphany. You know, as I was walking and I decided in that moment that I'd been doing it all wrong. And, you know, we got back to the car and I wish I could say that this story ended, you know, in that he changed his ways and didn't break the law anymore. And it turns out, no, he still was, you know, a guy that, you know, committed a lot of crimes. But every time I ran into him, he would, he would look at other cops who were trying to talk to him and go, I'm not going to talk to you, but I'll talk to her. And I was like, yeah, okay. So I walked up to him. And so, so basically, and it's such a, it's a, it's a crazy story, but what it does is it illustrated a really important thing to me because I started watching other cops who were successful cops. And what I mean successful is the ones that, that even our gangbangers were like, I'm going to talk to that guy, we'll talk to you, you know, and I thought, what makes them different? You know, and it, it was about communication. It was about, even though, you know, these, we have some gangbangers, it was, these guys were treating them with dignity and respect. And it occurred to me in this whole moment that that's all any of us want, even those who are breaking the law, they, they deserve to be treated with human dignity and respect and see, that's where we get into a riff. Do they deserve it? Right. Because they have done, you know, insert act here. Right. Yes. Yeah. So, you don't have to respect the action right but the humanity and it comes down to basic humanity and i think that is for me that was the day that changed everything for me and i decided instead of pretending to be this cop that borrowed power and you know wielding you know my tool belt and talking down to people i just decided to use my humor my compassion and god forbid the v word my vulnerability and just talk to people and at that time telling that dude I was scared and I knew he could beat me up turns out was what helped me survive in that moment and so after that I changed my entire style and and that I think helped me not only in my career but also in leadership because it's not just then talking to you know people who break the law but it's also your your the people in your organization you know it's like sometimes we move up in an organization and we yield that same power over right and we don't treat our people with human dignity and respect we treat them as though the person that's going to make the widget you know or contribute to the bottom line you know and so it was such an epiphany for me and it's really what changed the trajectory of my career
0: yeah and you use this example in the book which and there's many others which what makes it a page turner is your ability to tell a story um so a couple things um one of the things you said it's like you don't have to uh respect the act or you know it, but it's still a, a human being and I always like you know even if the person has stolen and they're not you know relating back to the LP interrogation and they're not confessing or they're not giving you everything I mean I always like to think like and you have this in your book um with some other examples but it's like what if that was your sister you know what and, and it's almost like have you So you're saying you've never made a bad decision in your life. It's almost like cast the first stone, right? Not to get all religious, but the point is everyone's been in a position at one time or another in their life and they've made a bad decision. And, you know, so I don't know. I'm always preaching that respect thing. The other thing I want to ask you about that I was thinking of when you were talking about the ego part, isn't it kind of a dichotomy because you have your the what you're what you have identified that helps make cops successful and hopefully their community interaction is it anti to the personality of who a cop has to be to have that courage to Mm -hmm. run to the bullets like when you showed part of your presentation of the is the video of this active shooter and and i'm telling you you could hear a pin drop because people are watching police officers run toward a gunman, right? So how do you square that? Is it two different brains that are needed for that role?
1: Yeah, so there are several kinds of people. See, this is why it's so interesting to me. You know, about I love. I I'm not a psychology major. I have absolutely no authority or credibility on this topic except for watching humans. You know, um, at, at their worst and at their best, and those with power, those without power, and it's so interesting what you say because there, there is a, it takes a special kind of human to be a first responder, and you know, you mentioned ego. Um, and to me, it's like when I use ego and that's sort of like the same thing about power is ego is, is a healthy thing. We all have ego, right? Right. But when it becomes, you know, it, when you move over to the dark side of ego is when it turns into narcissism, when it turns into, so it's like almost everything in life, you can point to, you know, things that are good about it and things that are bad about it, technology being the same. Right. But, but to, to that point, you know, it's about it's it's about this the yielding the power. um but but you you have to have here, let me go back to the first responders is that it takes a special kind of person to run towards things. Let me tell you, this is why I became a cop. At 10 years old, I sat in the back seat of my dad's station wagon and one day my dad was a cop. And one day he told me he's off duty and he said, stay in the car, don't move. And I was like, okay. And I watched my dad get out of the car and there was an accident that had just happened in the middle of the roadway. My dad starts pulling people out, laying them down, checking, you know, their status. And I'm like sitting here in my car, you know, looking at my dad while all the other cars are whizzing by. Second time it happened 12 years old. My dad is, is wrestling with a guy at a toll booth who had just crashed into the toll booth and he was a drunk driver. My dad was wrestling to get the keys away from him. Everybody else was flying by. And I was like, why did my dad stop? And everyone else did not And I realized that is, so there is something about a first responder and it actually is not just first responder. It's all of us. We fall into three categories as humans, um, fight, flight or freeze. And a lot of people think that they are one of those things. Like, no, if I was confronted with something <laughs> like that, I would totally run in until it happens. Right. And then and if you're not trained. And so this is where a first responder not only has to have that call to action, that that fight kind of you know mode inside them. Um, but they also then need to train upon that. Right. And so that's where training for mass shootings comes in is like you need to go towards that gunfire knowing that you've already been through a training scenario. And so a lot of people though say to me, I could never be a police officer. And my response is that's actually true because you need to be a person that is willing to put your own life um, you know, on the line for a stranger, you know, run towards that gunfire. And so, so the dichotomy there is, is exactly what it is that it takes a certain ego or confidence to do that. Right. And I think that's where you were headed is that, but then you also need to be, you know, treat people with human dignity and respect, even though they're a shooter. Right. And so, Yes, you need, but see, this is where this is where policing um fails at some points. and not all, but um with the headlines that you see is that you have to stop the action. So you have to stop the killing, and, you know, you have to um stop the injured. Um, and then you have to tend to those harmed. And that might even be the shooter. And so, you know, you just need to stop the action. And sometimes that action, doesn't stop by police officers. And that's when they commit acts of excessive force, you know, shooting someone in the back 16 times when they're running away. That is an act of excess. You've stopped the action, but then you, you know, you continue on. So I don't know if that answers your question, but there is sort of this balance of like, you have to have an ego or a certain confidence about you to run towards things, but then you also have to keep that in check. And, you know, while enforcing the law, you have to still treat people with human dignity and respect. And I believe with, all of my heart and soul that you can be both.
0: Yeah, it's it's like when you have on the chapter on police reform, when you talk about, it doesn't have to be one thought or the other, right? So this is kind of similar. You do have to have a sense of ego and courage to do that kind of work, as well as in the loss prevention field because you're approaching shoplifters and things like that. Um, but at the same time, you can still even if you don't have the skill innate into your body to learn and develop and, you know, and there, there's, there is ways to everything that can evolve to be better. Right. Which you, you talk about that in the last piece of, of the book, but, you know, it's interesting um, this guy that you're, that you were chasing the big guy and, and you, it brought up for me something that you then addressed, um with the Sandra Bland example is, And this is where it gets a little hairy, right? Because you talk about the evolution of your thought process. And I think, you know, I mentioned at the top of it, everybody's really going through kind of their own, hopefully, (laughs) self-discovery when it comes to why uh, our society is like it in certain ways. But if you, do you mind giving just a quick rundown of the Sandra Bland example? And then I want to get to you know, why you, why you wanted to research it so much, because it's a very simple, why don't people just comply with police? Yeah. Because yeah. it takes away all of the issues. Like, and, and if I, you know, given my background and how I grew up and and certainly open to exploring all of that, you, you see this on the news and you go, why didn't the guy just stop? He wouldn't have gotten killed if he just stopped. Yeah. Res- resisting or whatever. Right. And then, okay, so go ahead.
1: Yeah so that was a journey for me i have to tell you because i have found myself saying um even in, in recent days and that's why this is you know this isn't an absolute you know this is just the thought process that uh i'm trying to understand because i say all the time you know if you can look at an incident you can see the very moment and usually it is someone who fails to comply and there are you can take so many examples of things, um, you know, let's use the, the murder of George Floyd on this spectrum, right? The dude wasn't even fighting, you know. I mean, and and it was, you know. So then you have this. He it, he. It's not that he wasn't failing to comply, but for some reason, human dignity and humanity was not being applied to that individual, right? And then you go to the extremes, you know, where there is, you know, a, a, a shooter, you know, and and they're they're failing to comply, you know, drop the gun, drop the gun, and then those just those actions are justified, right? So you've got extremes here. And in the middle, you have all of these other incidents that happen that literally make my head scratch of like, okay, if you would have just done this, if you would have just complied, if you would have just and then I started to delve into the Sandra Bland incident. And it was the author Malcolm Gladwell that uh that caused me to do that because I'm a big fan of his work. And it, this is just another interesting thing, is I started reading his book, Talking to Strangers. And I'm such a big fan that the first chapter in his book almost made me put the book down, uh, because I was I was like, what do you what do you where are you going? So Sandra Bland, for those who are familiar or not familiar, very simply, she lived in the Chicago area, which is why it came on the Chicagoland news where I lived, and and she was arrested, and is it the it made the news because in jail she was found dead uh, from an apparent suicide, and. I just remember thinking, oh, well, okay, that's you know that is Seeds what it kind is. cut dry, yeah. It was suicidal, and yeah. she killed herself in her jail cell, right? And didn't think much of it. And the scuttlebutt started coming, you know, about well, was it actually a suicide? And I believe, I, I believe wholeheartedly was it was a suicide. But what I started to read in in Gladwell's book is his challenge of the events that occurred. And here's what happened. She left, you know, the Chicagoland area and was moving to Texas. And in a small town in Texas, she gets pulled over and she sees a police officer behind her. And uh, he flips the she she literally pulls over to get. Out. That's what it was. She pulls over to get out of his way. He's behind her. Yeah. And- He's coming up fast. On, yeah, on, she thought you know. he's just going around yeah, her. She, yeah. Exactly. So she thinks that this cop's he has got to go somewhere. So so she literally pulls over so to let the officer go around. And he suddenly flips his lights on and gets behind her. And he walks up to the car and she's confused. But you know, this interaction, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna continue the interaction, I'm gonna go backwards. And so basically what occurs is he tells her, You didn't put your turn signal on when you pulled over. And now she gets frustrated and visibly upset and, and says, I was pulling over so you could get around me. I didn't think about putting my blah. And 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 then the interaction, the cop is so polite. And I noted that. I was like, well, she's the agitator here. You know, she's the one that's being mouthy. And he asked for her license and she complies, but she's being very rude. He's not. And she lights up a cigarette inside of her car, which is not illegal. The officer tells her, put out your cigarette. She doesn't. She says, why? And then because she refuses to put her cigarette out, the officer says, Step out of the car right now. Now, this is where she went wrong because you have to step out of the car. And people don't think that, but if you Because if you don't do it, that's illegal. Exactly. And so she refused to step out of the car. And this is where it all breaks bad, right? So, I think, why didn't she just comply? Oh, my gosh, just put your damn cigarette yeah. out, right? Yeah. You know, Or just and get out
0: of the car. Just get
1: out of the car, yeah. right. And then, I, and, and so now I'm pissed as I'm reading Malcolm Gladwell's book. I'm like, this is not a good scenario for you to dissect because this is so cut and dry. And yet then he tells the backstory. And this is so important, I think, for the LP community because, a backstory does matter, it doesn't change your action, right? right. But to become curious about why you're doing well, what in this moment has brought you to this moment, yeah, that you are committing, this and crime. everybody has one, <laughs> everybody has one, right? And so, so what Malcolm Gladwell does is he dissects the incident backwards and he looks at Sandra Bland, who's never been in any felonious kind of trouble, nothing major, but she has tons of red tape with tickets and things that are you know just you know relatively minor in nature right and in this particular and it's cost her thousands of dollars that she does not have she's moving to Texas because she gets a new job and she's starting a new life and she literally is trying to get out of the way of the cop and this is now one more time right and think about and I put myself in this position thinking about when I said my oppressors, my tormentors. Right. And I can tell you when I got written up for something, I was like, Oh, come on, man. I got defiant. I got pissed off, you know, because all of these thousand tiny cuts that lead you to that moment where you're, you just start to blow, you just lose it. Yeah. You lose it. Right. And so in this, you know, to wrap it up, basically, you know, what Malcolm Gladwell does is dissect that um, that ultimately why was it that, Sandra Bland, even though she got mouthy, why was it up to her to defuse the situation? Instead, as she escalated, the officer escalated right there with her, you know, put your cigarette out, you know, or, or would it have been bad to say, you know what, go ahead. She's, you know, smoke your cigarette. And I'm going to write you a ticket. Okay. You know, wh- whatever. But it was put your cigarette out. Why? It's not illegal to light a cigarette. Fine. Step out of the car. See. And now in that moment, then now becomes ego. You, and this is what Malcolm Gladwell got me to see, and this is what I dissect. And I'm literally thinking out loud in my book, right? Of like, yeah. holy crap! Okay, so maybe you know this is where I'm looking at her as non-compliance, but 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 really, I should look at the police officer because it goes right back to what I was saying. Oh, write you another ticket if you keep talking. You know, keep keep mouthing off to me. I'm gonna write you another ticket. Same concept. That's my ego coming in because you are dared to question my authority. Yeah. It hooked him because she was like, no, I'm not putting the cigarette out. And then he, and then it's almost like he ratcheted up. He had the choice to say, here's your ticket. It was the cigarette. It was the cigarette that she lawfully lit up in her car that he wanted her to put out. And, and the cops are going, she didn't comply. This is, and, and, and I, for the first time in my life, I turned The perception, the perspective to that of Sandra Bland. And I thought, my God, I'd be pissed too if I was literally just getting out of the cop's way. And now here's where we are. I light up a cigarette in the car, and now here is where we are. And she had suffered from some depression in the past. And then this very thing, you know, was the proverbial straw for her, you know, as is, is she's starting her new life, here we are again in the mounds of red tape, she's arrested for, you know, um, you know, failing to comply, or obstructing or resisting, I'm not sure what it was. Um, And now she's sitting in a jail cell, contemplating, you know, how did she get here, you know, and of course, I'm adding all the narrative in but, but I, I grapple with this moment. And the whole premise of that chapter is to make truly me and readers just Spin the perspective, the paradigm ever so slightly. And maybe, you know, just maybe some more responsibility should also fall on the person with the power to de escalate. Why was it her job to de escalate that scenario? And it caused me, oh my gosh, I mean, it was just such an enlightening moment and it's helped me grow.
0: Yeah. And I love your point about the backstory, right? I mean, she's been dealing with this and we, we'd be pissed just in that one incident alone. And then you add up all of these other things that it's like, okay, you know, I mean, I, I always say, everybody's just a one bad conversation away from crazy. I mean, on a given day, really every you know? So I love the idea of the backstory because if you go into every situation with that, I, I don't know. I find myself even in tr- the stupid example of traffic or, you know, things not going your way because, you know, this, that, and the other, it's like, if you just go into things with a certain level of perspective and gratitude, your, mm-hmm. your, your things change. Now I know it's different for policemen. I mean, especially spe- when you're, you know, with your example of the guy who had, who's armed and dangerous, sure. like you have no idea. Every traffic stop is a new situation, but even coming to it with that empathetic type of approach, which yeah. you describe so well in your book.
1: But look at, I mean, just look at, it's not different, even though, you know, I mean, you can, you could argue it's different in law enforcement and, you know, we're dealing with different things, but it's not. I mean, when you look at loss prevention, you look at why someone commits a crime, why someone does what they do, why someone joins a gang, why someone eventually becomes an abuser, right? So I think when you come at it from a place of curiosity, and and you truly learn the story, and you know I I spent so much time in uh in uh, drug court where I had to approve or deny people who were going to get approved for drug court, and I had a very daunch idea about drug abusers because I was, I I survived a home of a raging alcoholic. And so I have a very black and white, if you choose to abuse substance, then, you know, this is your fault. You chose to do it. And whatever happens in your life in the unraveling is is you have to sit in those consequences. And then I got in charge of, uh, of people in drug court, right? So it is relevant to LP, but I'll, I'll get there is that then I started to sit down and I realized that there were people who were committing crimes because they were not, not because they were criminals, but because they were addicted to a substance. So they had to go out of just complete desperation, you know, go steal something to sell, to get drugs. And when I listened to the, the The grasp that addiction had on them and their whole lives being lost because of it and you connect the dots backwards as to why sometimes their own parents introduce them to it right and then you know but when you listen to someone's story you can learn you you joined a gang because your father was a gang member and his brothers and you know so like this is now your family business or you're left home and you have no tribe. And so the only tribe that will accept you is your gang tribe. So then now, as mentioned earlier, you you want to fit in. You have to do the thing that the tribe is doing. It's innate in us. And so, so it explains when someone who steals, you know, you know, you can go through the whole Robin Hood theory. Are they stealing because, you know, is it a, a mother who can't afford You know, school supplies for their kid, very different than a person that's just like, you know, I'm gonna steal this, yeah, they're
0: yeah, they're a booster stealing for offense. And a lot of the LP people listening will be like, it's mostly them. And they're like, okay. For okay,
1: but and for sure, but also like listening to the story. Now, here here's the thing, and I don't want people to misunderstand is that whole concept of human dignity and respect. Um, the whole idea that I'm not going to respect you if you walk into you know my place and you steal, you know, I I totally get that. But what I'm talking about is not respect. I'm talking about respect and treating the person, you know, and that you don't have to respect them as a human, you know, but uh, or respect their action, but you do have to respect them as a as a fellow human being. And sometimes that's just like, listen, what's your story? You know, why are you in here doing this? And you know, and and it doesn't mean that you don't hold people accountable. And I think that's where you know I don't want to to create a disconnect here. There's nothing soft about this at all. You still hold people accountable for their actions, but sometimes just asking them, you know, tell me about yourself, you know, what got you here, you know, and to me that just humanizes it. But, you know, again, it doesn't take away the fact that this is an action you have to deal with.
0: And that's part of the whole rapport building when you're a part of an interrogation. But I think we're talking about actually meaning it. (laughs) We're talking about actually meaning building that rapport and that empathy. So, okay, we're running out of time, but I want to talk to you about, uh, leadership, right? Because a lot of our listeners are in that executive director role. A lot of them are regionals, but they're all, you know, drivers or they wouldn't be listening to the podcast. Right. Um, and you, I love, I've never heard this. You say a lot of things I've never heard, which, you know, not that I'm all knowing, but man, it's cool. Um, leadership is about creating meaning in people's lives, which I think everybody's like, yeah, agreed. Um, mm-hmm. but then you talk about another definition that you learned at your time at Harvard, which I thought though, that in there for you, In <laughs> um, Harvard, at Harvard. <laughs> I love it. Um, but you were still there. Yeah. Leadership is about disappointing people at the rate they could absorb. And I was like,
1: dang. Okay. Mind blown. Yeah. Mind blown. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, for me, leadership has always been like this thing. It's to me, it's the summit, it's the thing that I know in my life, I can never attain that true level five leadership where, you know, you are, you know, as you have the mission and the vision and you lead people, you know, it's very Gandhi and mother Teresa like, and like for me, leadership is, is something that's always been out of my grasp, but it's something that I constantly strive to attain. And I immerse myself in leadership books and concepts and philosophies. And I think that leadership is about vision. It's about taking people where where they don't even know they want to go. Like in the words of Steve Jobs, people don't even know what they want until I tell them, you know, because he's got this vision and then he brings people with, and it's awe inspiring. And then I'm sitting in this classroom and this dude looks at us, Marty Linsky, Professor Marty Linsky, and he says, leadership is about disappointing people at the rate they can absorb. And I literally, I'm like, what is that fluffy? I, That's not this, fluffy. This is well, what kind of Harvard garbage is like, <laughs> this is, this is what they teach in Ivy league. And, and I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm sorry, sir. What are you talking about? Leadership is inspiration, you know, leading from the front, you know, or the back, depending on which one, you know, you subscribe to. And, and then he started talking about it and I still didn't buy in until I'm sitting in my chief's chair and it's like, you know, two months into my job, I don't know, and I had to make a decision because before when I was a commander, I was like, oh, well, you know, this is the chief's making the decision. And so, you know, I'd never say that, but this is, you know, like it's, I always had something, you know, someone to blame it on or, you know. Yeah. And um, and so I remember sitting in the chair going, wow, okay. So like, there's nobody, <laughs> I made make this decision. And when I make this decision, uh, 50% of my people are gonna be pissed off and 50% are gonna be happy. And then I was like, oh, Marty, I get it. So leaders have to make hard decisions. They have to make hard decisions because the organization to flourish for an organization to flourish hard decisions have to be made. You have to, you know, whether it's in policy or the next promotion to move someone into, you know, this, you know, a lateral transfer to pick people, you know, whatever it might be, there is someone making a decision and invariably someone is gonna be pissed off about that decision that is made. And I recognized in that moment that is about disappointing people at the rate they can absorb, which means that in order to be a functioning leader, you have to make sometimes people uncomfortable. They have to feel discomfort, especially when an organization is going to grow, which means that you're trying to change an organization or reform an organization. You're going to have to make decisions that are unpopular, but If you keep these three concepts in mind, there is a litmus test. Are you doing the right thing for the right reasons and at the right time? That does not mean, am I doing the right thing? And this is where your ego comes in for me. Am I doing the right thing, you know, just, just for me and my cronies? No. Are you doing the right thing for your organization? And, and if you answered yes, then I believe, and it's been my experience, that people will respect it, even if they don't agree with your decision. I've had many people come to me and say, "Um, I totally disagree with that decision, but I absolutely understood how you got there and I respect it. And so leadership is about disappointing people, which means that as a leader, you cannot strive to be loved because then you will worry about what everyone thinks and you won't be comfortable disappointing people feared is the worst because people will do exactly what you want them to do for a very short period of time. And then they will start to resent you and then they will turn on you. And so the true answer is a leader should be neither. They should be respected. And part of being respected is that you make hard decisions and sometimes there's going to be people who are upset about it or disappointed.
0: Yeah, that's. I was hoping you would go get to the three things because I love that. I think it's um a great way to kind of really. It's a simple thing you can remember when you're in the heat of making some of these tough decisions, right? Um, and and yeah, it you. I almost want to say that that's like the most accurate leadership decision or leadership definition I've ever heard, <laughs> because when you get especially where you uh were as chief, it's not it couldn't be all flowers and roses to where you're making decisions and everyone's just super stoked all the time. Like, yeah. oh, yay. You know? And I think that's a lot where our audience might be, you know, especially as you know, they, they, it's a small industry that we're in. Right. And as people even move careers and do other things, like it's, it's getting to the apex of their career. That is yeah. the goal. And yeah. Yeah.
1: And can I let me even say something that I think is even, you know, just as as profound about leadership is that when you ask yourself, this has been my litmus test, am I doing the right thing for the right reasons? And I'll tell you what, I was surprised at how many times that answer was no when I reflected on it, because I was putting a person in a position because I liked them versus a person who was more qualified. And when I say when I stopped am I am I doing this for the right reasons? And I bring that up because great leadership does not promote in their own likeness. Does not bring people to the table just because, you know, and this is but this is what we do because again it's it's our innate it's it's truly our innate in our humanism is that I want to be with people that think like me, that look like me because that makes me feel warm and comfortable, right? But when you actually bring people in that think differently, that look differently, that have different cultures, that come from different experiences, you're actually elevating your organization. And so so that's also a part of leadership too, is I, I've, I've lost many friends over the course of moving up in my career because I didn't put them in positions. They were my friends. And I did the litmus test. Am I doing the right thing? And, and then I realized, no, I'm not, this person is actually more qualified and I need to take a chance on them, even though I don't know them. And so I lost some friendships over that. And that sort of goes to the disappointing people, but leadership is about literally surrounding yourself with people that are going to look at you and challenge your thought because that is how an organization completely catapults to another level.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a phenomenal, that's a phenomenal thing to leave it on. I have lots more things to ask you, so maybe we'll have you back, but you have to um, come to our LPSA to meet Kristen. She hangs out, which is really cool. (laughs) Um, And the presentation is so moving that after we heard it at Apex, my company calibration group decided we had made um, posters about training schools about see something, say something that are free completely free for every school in the world that wants it um, downloadable on our website. But we also said to everybody in attendance, and I'm giving this offer here, you make the point about active shooter training, and we are all about trying to save lives. So our awareness company is providing anybody that wants it, a free print file of a see something, say something poster, because your presentation outlines exactly what to be looking for. And if we could get that out there to all those frontline people that say, oh, I knew it would be him, or I knew it, or, you know, after events like this occur, you've got the guy going, well, if it was anybody, it was Sammy or whatever. So that offer is out there. Just message me if you want us to create a see something, say something poster for you for completely free. We're all trying to save lives, right? I mean, this is nuts. All these people, I don't understand what's going, what's happening um but reimagining the blue it it was very cool I um I can't say that enough link in the show notes to buy this book and of course come to rlpsa um it is an absolute honor and pleasure to spend time with you I really appreciate it
1: oh the feeling is so mutual Amber I'm so excited to see you again uh and so yeah I look forward to it and thank you so much for having me on
0: Yes. And we only get, got a fraction of the book. So, you, I mean, you guys got to get yourself a copy. It's incredible. So, all right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Talk LP podcast. Don't forget to download our app and we will talk at you later. Cause, 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 yeah. no one can do it. Like, we do it. Like, we do it. Like, we do it. Cause, no one can do it. Like, we do it. Like, we do it. Like, we do it.